You're listening to Jay's Journal Podcast for Monday, July the 31st. I'm your host, as always, Ari Shapiro. And this evening, it's my pleasure to bring you a fantastic interview with a roundtable the likes you haven't heard in a long while. Of course, I'm referring to our first guest this evening, which will be Ainka Jess from She's for Sports. And following that, we're going to have a round table consisting of Chris Henderson and Craig Borden of Jay's Journal and Jeff Falbo, formerly of DeepLeagues.com, to talk about the trade deadline, some of the moves that are being made around baseball, and of course, comment on the Blue Jays and how their recent homestand may have left everybody wanting just a little bit too much. Unfortunately, the Jays will go into the trade deadline as a team that is in no position to buy anything, and recording Francisco Liriano and Joe Smith have already been dealt for various different pieces including Aoki that I think fans will agree are really decent for the kind of value that was traded Smith of course is a replaceable part in the bullpen albeit a very effective one and Francisco Liriano truthfully I I am disappointed I expected more from him I want to succeed being a left-hander but it's clear the Blue Jays will have to rely on either free agency or developing a pitcher down on the farm to make sure that they have someone to eventually replace him in the starting rotation. My next guest developed marketing campaigns and media relations for CBC Toronto, Metro Morning, and Manulife, has worked in the Canadian Senate, and is the founder of She's for Sports. Ainka Jess is on Jays Journal Podcast. Ainka, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Glad that we could connect and, and have this opportunity to talk about what is a shared passion, which is the Toronto Blue Jays. And therefore, I have to start by asking you, as a huge Blue Jays fan, how are you feeling during this time of year and uh, what are your thoughts about this 2017 campaign? It, it's hard. You know, I think um, given their, their record the last two seasons of making it to the postseason, everybody was so excited. And I think going into this season, you're riding that high. But obviously, um, this year is a different, a very different story. Uh, I don't think anybody could have foresaw, you know, maybe the injuries and just, uh, you know, the up and down uh, records that the Jays are having. I think for fans, we're 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 going through the through the the, the motions with them, and it's it, sometimes it feels like you're you're in a bit of a soap opera. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think fans generally love the Blue Jays. I, I know that uh, out of the MLB um, leagues, um, we probably have the most uh, fans who turn out to watch the game. So, you know, I, th- I think we're going to sort of, you know, bat- batter ourselves down and what do they say, batter down the hatches and just mm-hmm. kind of ride it out, ride out the storm with them. I think uh, fans are, are, are going to be loyal. There there probably are going to be some changes to next season, um, you know, based on who's going to be traded. I think I, I read today Liriano's gone. Um, yeah. I think there'll be a couple more people gone, but I think it'll be for, for, for good. It'll be good for for the better for them so that, you know, we, we can uh, make sure that, you know, we are we are that team that will be, uh, you know, able to get back into the postseason again. Now, I find it interesting that you use the word loyalty with your response there, because I, I'm wondering your interpretation of what fan loyalty really means when we look at a team that, endured a uh, 22-23 year stretch of not being able to make the playoffs. What does it say in your opinion that we have fans that are willing to stick through thick and thin with these Blue Jays, but then we also have a large dearth of fans who seem to kind of vacillate as the wind blows. You know, they're the ones on the social media that usually say, hey, we're angry because they're losing and we don't care anymore versus we love that they're winning. Let's all jump on the bandwagon. What are your thoughts about fan loyalty in Toronto? 
Well, I don't want to compare the Jays to the Leafs, but the Leafs still have uh, lots of fans uh-oh. who turn out to their games, <laughs> even though their record has been, uh, you know, really bad over the years. Um, but I think last season, uh, you know, with good uh, and new players, uh, you know, coming onto the team, I mm-hmm. think the Leafs look a lot better, and there there will be, you know, that 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 hope for next season that they'll do a lot better. Um, with the Jays, I, I just think that um, everything that they've gone through this season, I think it's just their stories have been humanized. I find that when I talk to my colleagues, you know, oh, what do you think about the Jays? They're more to say, well, they're having a bad day or a bad couple of months, but they'll, they'll, they'll push past it. And, I mean, we uh, watched the game yesterday uh, where they were down. I think at one point I was looking, it was like 10 to 4, and he didn't think that they'd win, and then they just kind of were able to hold on and, and get that win. I think that the Jays have those pop-up moments where you're just like, yeah, that's the that's the postseason team, that the type of play that we know that they're capable of. I think they have a lot of power on the team. Yes, there are some older players, and we have to make a couple adjustments, but they just have that thing that you're like, you know what, they're they're gonna they're gonna get better. I don't know what it is, but I find the fans that I talk to are are, are more hopeful. Those on the social media who uh, you know they, they who are just kind of you know, uh, saying, you know, things about them that, uh, you know, are more negative or they're not mm-hmm. remaining positive down the stretch. Those are just bandwagon fans. They'll be back. They'll be back on the, the hopeful side, you know, once the Jays start, uh, you know, winning the games again. And hopefully that will be next season. Truly optimistic, Ainka Jess. Let's talk about Cheese for Sports, Ainka. I'm fascinated by this. Tell my listeners what Cheese for Sports is all about and what your mandate is. Yeah, so I launched Cheese for Sports last year, and really um, I launched it because I wanted to give women a larger voice in sports. We do it in two different streams. We have uh, we post and we distribute digital content across our social media platforms, and I also uh, we also hold events. Um, so last uh, April, um, we held an event where we featured five different women in sports at different levels in their career, different ages, mm-hmm. and uh, really they were talking about their careers, the challenges, um, the best parts of their careers, getting into the business. Um, of sports and just their experience and I think um, you know audience members uh, really resonated with them um, it was a very intimate um, environment uh, they got a Q there was a Q&A after they were able to network after and it was again as I said just women uh, across the sports spectrum one worked for uh, the Raptors 905 as a sports commentator there was a, another woman who does data analytics for the San Jose Sharks she joined us by Skype. So you got to really just get, uh, you know, a good introduction to these women and, and how they got into to their careers in sports and that, you know, there are a lot of areas in sports that women can, can work in. It's not just in the front office uh, or, you know, as a coach, which is great, but there, there are so many other positions and, and ways for women to engage in sports. And uh, it was, I was glad to, to feature those women. That sounds fascinating. And, and it's interesting for me, especially having someone like Jackie Redman on the show a few weeks where she came to the podcast and talked about her industry in particular, which is journalism. And and I'm wondering your thoughts as someone who is a marketing professional, as someone who spent many years coordinating with media and public relations, how do you feel about the way female journalists are portrayed in the media relative to their male counterparts? I'm wondering, has the industry successfully addressed the gender gap? And are we making progress when it comes to the types of opportunities available to women across fields that are normally traditionally male dominated? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because if uh, there's many times when I've had to interview my guests, and if you just go on Google and, and search Canadian sports broadcasters, what will what you'll see at the top of the search result is Canadian or just hot female sportscasters. Why does that mm. need to be there? 
And if I Google, you know, top uh, male sports broadcasters in Canada, that the the word hot, the sort of focus on their image, um, is not there. So I, you know, obviously women are are looked at and treated a lot differently than their male counterparts are. But I'm hoping that we are in a place of, of, of change. I mean, you mentioned Jackie Redman. She's smart, she's talented, and she's passionate about sports. Um, I just interviewed her um, on the weekend for She's for Sports, and we're working on editing that, that interview. But it was a great time talking to her. She knows her stuff. You know, she talked about, you know, playing hockey growing up and just, um, you know, always uh, watching uh, baseball with her dad and, and having an opinion about sports. And, you know, that's what we should be focusing on when we're, uh, you know, interviewing women in sports, um, their passion for the sport, you know, how they were able to, to get into the fields that they're in. We shouldn't be talking about how they look or, you know, if this person is, is a size four, is she going to get a job on TV, um, mm. you know, over someone who's a size 12? I just think that we... Um, Sometimes we're, we're, we're our own enemies because we continue to repeat the stereotypes and, and talk about the, the body issues and stuff that um, that shouldn't really be there um, in, in sort of the content. And I think that's kind of, unfortunately, we're still seeing that now. You know, as I said, why should I be Googling Canadian sportscasters, females, and then the word hot or the most beautiful, a top 10 list of the most beautiful female sportscasters pops up. I just think that that's kind of where we are now. But I'm, I'm positive that we can move past that. And it's, it's by showcasing these people like Jackie. It's about me talking about Jessica Mendoza, the first female MLB sports commentator, color commentator, mm-hmm. and, and showing people that these women exist and they exist. They're out there. They're sharing their voices because they know a lot about sports. They know exactly what they're talking about and they can hold up to their counterparts, you know, in the jobs that they do. Before I let you go, Ainka, tell me about what you have on the horizon planned in terms of uh, She's for Sports events and how people can find you on the web. So people can find um, She's for Sports on the web, even if you do a a quick Google search at She's for Sports. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, um, Instagram, same thing, She's for Sports. And, um, you know, we're, 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 we welcome everybody that wants to, to talk to us about sports, who have an opinion about something that we've posted. And I can honestly say that we have a good balance. I mean, I've had guys reach out to me to say, great, love what you're doing, glad you took a risk, uh, follow your stuff, love the content. And obviously there are women who are engaging in the conversation. So it's really for everyone. I mean, you will definitely see that the focus is, is mainly on women, but it's really for, for sports fans who, who just want to talk about sports and like the content that we're, we're featuring. And what's coming up next, um, I'm hoping to put together another event before Christmas, and uh, I can't tell you what it's going to be about, but we'll definitely we'll be featuring women or a woman in sports, uh, hopefully here in Toronto, uh, who, you know, has a great story to tell, who, um, you know, wants to engage with fans and, and, and loves talking about sports. So that's kind of what's coming up next. You heard it here first. It's a big surprise, so stay tuned. And be sure to check out Ainka Jess, founder of She's Four Sports. You can find her on Twitter at She's Four Sports, the number four. Ainka, I hope to have you back on a roundtable very soon. Thank you for finding the time to speak with me this afternoon. Thanks a lot, Ari. And now, as promised, we're going to have a fantastic roundtable. And I'm pleased to have three brilliant baseball minds who I'm sure all have something to say about the trade deadline I'm talking, of course, about minor league guru Craig Borden, site expert Chris Henderson, and former writer with DeepLeagues.com Jeff Falbo are all here. Gentlemen, let's start with the obvious question. How many more walk-off Grand Slams to win a game will Steve Pierce hit? Jeff, give me your thoughts on all things Steve Pierce. I, I think that's it. I think he's peaked. He's, uh, 
he's done his uh, one month of uh, uh, I've earned most of my contract. And uh, I think that's as far as we can go. I, I'm hoping that he keeps the show going, but I, I, I don't know. This is the first player ever to hit two walk-off grand slams in a week. It's ridiculous. ridiculous. <laughs> it's just obscene now. I don't see it going on much further than that. But if he can start, you know, keep hitting the ball like he's been hitting it, it's going to be interesting to see what he could carry in the next season. You know, this is the point, you know, we're still teetering on that what-if line, but never know what we could get out of this. Yeah, I think he's. Uh, I think he's showing Blue Jays fans why the front office brought him in to begin with. He's not, you know, getting paid just over six million a year. He's obviously not a superstar, but the versatility that he provided with being able to play the outfield, whether how well you know he plays defense in the outfield is debatable. But you know, nobody saw Justin Smoke performing the way he did this season. So Steve Pearson, in my mind, was supposed to be you know first baseman, and now that he's healthy, I think he's performing and showing showing why. I, you know, I don't think anyone can expect him to be quite on the torrid pace as far as big shots like that, but uh, but I think he's certainly serviceable. I think he's doing exactly what we saw him do last year with the Baltimore Orioles, which is he's a tough out, and he crushes inside fastballs, and when he knows they're coming, he doesn't miss them. And that's a refreshing change of pace from the way we've seen this lineup work all year. Let's turn our attention now to what this team has done. It's reached the, the, the trade deadline sputtering really should have taken two out of three against the angels the uh, soon implosion i'm sure you'll all agree had to happen sooner or later he was just too damn good for too damn long i want to ask you craig has this homestand in any way changed your belief that regardless of whether or not we continue without joe smith or francisco liriano it's pretty much going to be the same team until the end of the year and then big questions will have to be asked I think those big questions are definitely coming for the off season, especially with some of the guys we have still after the trade deadline. That's basically where we're sitting right now. Uh, but I think it's going to be an interesting run down the end of the ways here. You know, maybe this, some of these are going to free up some space for some of these kids to come up that I've had the pleasure of watching in the Meyer leagues. And uh, it's just, it could be exciting down the end of the stretch here. You never know what's going to happen. And I know we're still a five, below 500-level team, but it'd be really refreshing to see them finally hit the 500 mark and maybe spoil some of the times for the Rays and the Yankees and Red Sox coming down the line here. I mean, I, I'm not so optimistic. I, I think this homestand was a perfect example of uh, the one step forward, two step back, two step mm-hmm. forward, one step back that they've been doing all season long. Um, I mean, let's face it, they almost got swept by the Angels, uh, minus that uh, crazy ninth inning. But, uh, you know, it certainly wouldn't surprise me that they sweep Oakland and then got swept by the Angels themselves. Um, But uh, I I think they have to, the Jays have to stay relevant. And especially in this market, Toronto market, that the Leafs, the Toronto Maple Leafs are starting to come around. I I don't think... um, I don't think the Jays can disappear anymore. They have to stay relevant in the market. They have to stay on the front pages. Um, I think this offseason is a crucial offseason. They can't sleep by and watch guys go because with their their raising of ticket prices, uh, um, fans now have expectations, and uh, this year they weren't met. Yeah, and for me, I... uh... Looking at just the roster now, I think it's still possible, especially with Aoki's, um, you know, be him with uh, Nori Aoki coming in mm-hmm. to the roster as well. It's, we've got a bit of a glut of outfielders now. And looking at the guys that that were potential trade candidates, you know, I think Batista could certainly pass through waivers in August and still be a potential trade candidate. I think Ezekiel Carrera could potentially be that guy as well. 
um, and maybe even Aoki himself if somebody else wanted to pick him up if they wanted to flip him for something else. Um, and if not, then I think there's going to be a potential for somebody to get DFA'd, whether that's Aoki or potentially Carrera or something has to happen there because there's just a bit too many outfielders. And there's some exciting guys that should get a chance uh, later on in the season to play a little bit more regularly, especially if the team isn't in the hunt at all. Chris, I'm wondering how frustrating is it for you to see that Francisco Liriano and Joe Smith were dealt knowing that under normal circumstances or what was expected of the team, these were supposed to do to be essentially two important pieces to help them contend. Does that mean that it's a complete repudiation to get rid of these players or is the hope that because they're one of the few players that you can't control, you're going to get something back for it? I mean, you mentioned Aoki. He's a serviceable 35-year-old outfielder. Should there be something positive that comes out of this move other than thinking, man, I really wish Liriano would have worked out because really he had a lot going for him and there were really high hopes that he could get 10 to 12 wins this year. I, I guess when I look at it, I, my mindset has changed regarding the team more recently. And now I kind of flipped into a mode of thinking like, I'm glad that they did deal the two guys, especially in Liriano's case that, you know, the trade that they actually, that they made in my mind was pretty good. Uh, I was kind of bantering with some people on Twitter earlier today. And, and I said to somebody, you know, I would have traded Liriano for just Aoki himself. Not mm. because I think he's going to be some sort of crucial piece, but because, you know, he's got some control for next year and he's kind of a lead off type of guy. And, and in my mind, yeah, we, it's not, uh, you know, he's not the missing piece to, uh, to a championship team by any means, but uh, he could certainly help us in a leadoff role uh, with this team. And uh, it's not that he was even hitting poorly. He was hitting around 270 or 275, um, having a reasonably typical year for, for himself. But there's a lot of outfielders in Houston that are talented. So he just uh, was a guy that could get moved without it hurting their roster at all. I'd like to jump in on that last comment that we were talking about. I, I think what they said in the last – series here is that they're not going to go down without a fight regardless of what's going on as far as the standings and everything goes but then you do have the flip side of that coin where they do trade the Lariano and Joe Smith but uh, I, I love what we got back for Lariano and I thought we got a really nice return for Joe Smith too especially looking at some of these minor league guys uh, the one was the number ninth ranked prospect from the uh, Astros organization, and then we got also some guys that I would call good sleeper picks back from the uh, Joe Smith trade, so they got some good pieces back for guys that I wouldn't have guessed such a high return for, but I guess they were higher valued on the market than you would have thought they were. Yeah, and you know, like that, I, forgive me if I'm saying it wrong, but I think it's Teoscar uh, Hernandez that was the outfielder that came with uh, Aoki from Houston, and he's a legit prospect that's pretty much major league ready. Um, you know, maybe he's not the superstar ceiling, but he's uh, he seems like he's going to be a serviceable outfielder at the very least. You know, the Cleveland trade, I think, uh, I laugh at some people on Twitter earlier today because, you know, they're complaining, oh, you know, they're trying to deal with Cleveland. Of course, it's, uh, you know, they're trying to deal with their own old organization. Why do they always go to that well? Well, why not? Those guys know that system better than anyone. And so to grab a couple of sleeper picks like that, in my mind, that's, uh, you know, you're sending a guy like Joe Smith somewhere where if uh, apparently his mother is ill and that puts him closer to her. So in my mind, that's just a classy move from the organization and you're getting a couple of sleeper picks. And uh, Joe Smith has been great, but I mean, it's in the grand scheme of things, his value to Toronto isn't really that big considering we only have control of him until the end of the year. Those two players, Lariano and uh, Smith, they weren't going to bring a, a high-end, top-tier prospect. So basically, 
you know, to get depth prospects uh, back into the organizations, ones that are a little bit closer to major league ready than, uh, see, right now the strength in the Jays minor league system is uh, A, high A, um, and slowly they're moving into double A. But, I mean, again, to, to, again, fill that gap, I mean, to pick up a couple extra prospects that are a year, year or maybe two ready, or even, again, it's never a bad idea to have too many prospects in your organization farms. So, so that being said, let's talk about prospects and something that I found to be absolutely disturbing about the Yankees acquiring Sonny Gray. And I know you're all smiling because you know exactly what I'm talking about, which is the Yankees giving up three of their organizational prospects and none of them were in the top three of their own farm system. How does that happen and why do we see that over and over again where someone like a Sonny Gray, who we agree is heck of a deal. Yes, the Yankees gave up. Uh, they, they they did give up some prospects. Um, people are forgetting that the Yankees now uh, have one of the top um, farm systems in the league, and that's something they hadn't been able to say for the better part of a decade. But they've really invested a lot into their farm system. They made some high-end trades last year, uh, trading Chapman, trading Miller away, and they got some elite prospects in return. So the Yankees' farm system um, is 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 underrated right now. Uh, so I mean, a fourth-ranked prospect coming out of their system could be a number two or a number three in most other systems. So it's not like the Yankees gave up chicken feed, but it's not like they didn't give up a top-tier prospect. I mean, when you look at what the Quintana trade. Um, entailed, um, I mean, you're seeing elite prospects uh, going back and forth. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I think the Yankees uh, got a pretty good deal. But I, I think the A's were were in a position to, to try and trade him because I, I do believe, actually, he might have one year of uh, arbitration left. Uh, Chris might be able to uh, help out on that one. But, uh, yeah, certainly I don't think the uh, A's were prepared to give him the raise. And uh, so I think the Yankees were there uh, giving a prospect package. I believe he signed yeah, up in 2019, actually, was just to interject mm. that point. Yeah, yeah, he's actually got a couple years left of, of control. So that's why I'm really surprised. Um, I'm really surprised that there wasn't a better package that was offered uh, for him by somebody, you know, even including the Blue Jays, if that was kind of where the, you know, I don't know if they called and asked what kind of, what kind of you know? I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago or a week ago that was talking about, hey, ask about him with 2018 in mind. And uh, I think if they knew that this was the return that it might net, then they, I, I would have certainly considered it if I was running a front office. I mean, so when you means... look at the Quintana trade and and what the the Cubs gave up to get him, I mean, it pales in comparison what the Yankees gave up to get Gray. Well, Certainly. I think a lot of that one on the Quintana note, though, is he has a ton of control left on his contract, <laughs> where mm-hmm. Sonny Gray has a couple of years yet left after this year. So mm-hmm. I want to but say still, Quintana was know. up till 2020 or 2021. With, mm-hmm. I think this is his first year or going to be, you know, in the next year, his next first arbitration level. But you got to think that the biggest prospect in that trade was Dustin Fowler, who has been salvageable, but then he got hurt in his first game was a New York Yankee. <laughs> He's going to be forever known as that guy. He's no more different to me than giving Dalton Pompey to the Oakland A's <laughs> for Sonny Gray as the main trading piece. So maybe it's just me simple, oversimplifying it and knowing all too well what lies in our minor league system, who I think is 
way too underrated. <laughs> we have a lot of depth of the same level, I think, of our, our minor league system's uh, ish, issue. But as far as things go, it's very interesting to see where it could have went because I think we could have offered just as much talent for Sonny Gray as the New York Yankees ended up. But maybe that's because the Oakland A's are famous for trading guys that nobody knows about. Everybody remembers what we gave up for Josh Donaldson and Franklin Barreto looks like he's going to be an everyday shortstop and very, very good for the Oakland A's going forward. And everybody forgets that he was the main centerpiece of that trade for Josh Donaldson. So looking, looking at the realization that they received a controllable pitcher for a few years even makes my point that much more dreadful as to how they were able to pull it off. And there was not a better offer. Maybe the Jays, I don't think any of us here expected them to be out and to go out and be buyers and try to find some deals for the club. But are you a little bit are you a little bit surprised start with you Chris that this team is basically going to be the exact same team for the rest of the year? Who would you like to see called up? Let's talk about what kind of different flavor we'll get. You know, we all talked about the importance of competing and how you lose is important and the inspiration behind that victory. I mean, guys, it was a 10-4 lead. When you come back to win in the bottom of the ninth down by six, that means you've got a team of fighters and you've got guys who don't want to get embarrassed. What, what, which players would you like to see called up, Chris, that maybe will spare them embarrassment down the stretch? I'd like to see a healthy Anthony Alford get a shot in the outfield, and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the glut. Um, in the outfield, you know, if the Blue Jays are in a position like right now, I think they're still in a mindset that they want to compete and maybe make an improbable comeback. And I think that's how they have to think about things. But uh, as the season goes on, I think they're going to have to transition into a state where they're looking at what's going to happen next year, because yeah, they'll have Steve Pierce returning again, assuming they don't trade him in the off season or even in August, try to slip him through. Uh, Batista's likely gone. Aoki um, has one more year of arbitration eligibility, but he's been non-tendered before. So right now, I think they're going to have to just really establish um, who's going to be in their outfield next year because um, that's the biggest question mark as far as the regular lineup goes for me for, 2000, for 2018. Well, Chris, I definitely agree with you on the idea of bringing Alfred up. He just got a chance to start showing what he could do, and then he gets hurt after having his first, you know, double. <laughs> so it was, uh, it'd was be interesting to see what he can do with a full sample size full of stuff. Um, one of the guys that I'm thinking, if you're all of a sudden going to have this hole in the pitching rotation with Lariano gone, Chris Rowley has been doing nothing but tear up double A and now triple A after being promoted. I'd be curious to see if uh, that's something you actually have, if it's a flash in the pan or uh, if he's got something really good to go off of. I'm just looking at his stats on my phone here, and in eight starts in Buffalo, he has a 2.49 ERA. So that's triple-A level hitters that he's found a way to get out. And he started the season in New Hampshire, and that was a after, you know, being hurt for the beginning part of the season, if I recall. So looking at some of the other transactions that were noteworthy this afternoon, you Darvish, who was in the, the news a few days ago for tipping his pitches, um, is going to be a Dodger, and he went for a prospect package. And I'm wondering your, your thoughts on that, Craig, about you, Darvish, in general, because this was once considered an elite pitcher. Is he still an elite pitcher in your eyes? Go ahead. Yeah, you, Darvish, I think, can pick up and be good still with no problems, no questions asked. I don't know if it's a change of scenery thing or what could be doing, but I still don't think he has – he's still an elite hitter – or a pitcher, I mean, with no problems. I think he's mm-hmm. going to slide right into that Dodgers rotation, and he's going to look like a great pitcher again. 
with the Yankees going out and, and making some of the trades that they've made, you know, retooling themselves, they got Frazier, they got Robertson. Uh, let me ask you, Jeff, is, is this actually the big window that's opening for the Yankees? I mean, it looks like they could dominate for years to come. Should they be the team that the Blue Jays will have to fear the most moving forward? 2018, 2019, and beyond? Well, we knew it would happen. I mean, when you looked at them in the uh, early 90s when they were retooling, and for the better part of a decade, they had a young nucleus that essentially carried them (laughs) uh, almost 15 years. So, yeah, we knew the Yankees were going to retool. I don't even think they believed that they would retool this quick and turn it around and be competitors. Um they'd be lying to you if they said they could do it in a year. But I think uh, last year we saw them uh, uh, trading a lot of players that still had multiple years left on their contract, um, you know, in their bullpen and uh, any position player, whoever wanted them uh, could take them. And the Yankees got some pretty good prospects in return, actually some pretty elite prospects in return. Um, and so now the Yankees are in a position to make some moves uh, they can certainly be competitive. They are competitive right now, and they really haven't uh, tapped too far into their farm system. So I think the conveyor belt of players that are going to be brought up to their system uh, is on its way. Uh, I, I'm still a little bit questionable about the Yankees pitching, but uh, we all know the Yankees have money, and if they want pitching, uh, they just go out and get pitching. Yeah, and to me, I mean, the Yankees have absolutely solidified themselves as a as a, a potential powerhouse going forward for the next, who knows, half decade or as, maybe as long as they choose to decide to be in that kind of mode. But to me, I'm also just equally as concerned about the Red Sox for the next uh, same period of time, the kind of core that they've built um, just around guys like Betts and Bradley and Bogertz and, and having Chris Sale there under control for a long time. And, uh, you know, they're not going to go away quietly either. So it's really important for the Blue Jays. I think, again, I think uh, I saw a tweet from you the other day, Ari, that was talking about that's, that's the very same thing. They, if they choose to uh, just roll over um, next season, then it's going it could potentially be another dark period for the Blue Jays if they just decide, okay, well, the Red Sox and Yankees are going to be elite. So we'll just wait till that's done and we'll take our shot again. We, we can't have that. I, I, I don't know. Maybe now is the time to do it, Chris. I mean, we all saw Houston uh, about five, ten years ago basically fold up the tent and uh, get rid of everybody and, and look like huh, they were the worst team, but they also looked like the worst team while the Angels were having their run, while Oakland was having their run. And what did they do? They retooled their farm system. They uh, did really well. So, I mean, if the Jays are going to... Uh, you know, bottom out, I think maybe now is the time to do it, knowing that the Yankees and Boston are going to be competitive for the next five years. Now would be a good time. That's my opinion. I mean, I believe in retooling your farm system and starting from scratch, but I know, um, you know, not being relevant in this market, uh, and and we all live the dark period of the Jays in the mid-2000s, and, um, yeah, we don't want that either. So it, it's a tough balancing act. But don't be in the middle. Do one or the other. No, to me, the reason I think that you that I I don't I wouldn't do a complete teardown, and we've talked about this a bit on the show in the past here, is just those elite um, young pieces that the Jays do have, and that to me that's why it would be such a shame to watch the Yankees and Red Sox go through a uh, 
through a period where they dominated the division again while we wasted years from Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez and, and Roberto Osuna and potentially others that uh, that could be elite elite kind of players. I would be ashamed not to build around those guys and, and the ones that are coming still in the minor league system in my mind because I think if you let it get out of control now, it, it's going to be a long rebuild with that kind of competition in the division. Good points here, and they might be able to move along with it. And I, I don't see any reason why they should ever have to do a teardown the way the Houston Astros did. There's too much good talent in the minor league system. You're talking about not only wasting, like Chris said, uh, the main three there, but you're talking about wasting time from Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero, all these other guys that are coming. It, that's an extended, ridiculous drought of terribleness if you're going to do the Houston Astro yes. formula. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I wanted to ask you, Craig, why are we normalizing the conversation that they should be spending $160 million when we know that the players that they can build around now, specifically Marcus Stroman, Roberto Asuna, Aaron Sanchez, Devin if he can somehow stay healthy, coupled with what you know to be the soon-to-be arrival of, of Bobochette and Vlad Guerrero Jr., isn't that a reason to spend more money? I mean, it, it, Chris mentioned the Yankees and the fact that they're in win-now mode by virtue of the moves they've made. They still have a road to future, but they're going to spend $200, $220, $240 million a year. Why can't this Blue Jays team spend $190 million and while they're developing their young talent can go and sign the free agents necessary to keep their team competitive. Is that in your eyes? I agree with you hundred percent on that note, Ari, as far as that goes, because I think if you spend some of these guys that you know, that are going to be coming, you know, they're going to be cheap. You know, they're, they're going to be on rookie contracts. It's like mm-hmm. Stroman and all the pre arbitration eligible players. And if you know that you got Bo Shett coming to play short, if you know you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to play third, or with mm-hmm. my opinion, that he's been playing a solid third in the Myers, but I think he's destined to be at least a corner outfielder by the time it's over. I'd love to see him play third. I think that's great that he's doing that, and that's definitely the way to start him. But if you know you have those positions in the few coming years, and I honestly think maybe a couple of them might be sooner than anybody thinks, but um, – those guys haven't been challenged yet. You fill in around those places. You know you're going to need some a center fielder, or you know you're going to need a right fielder. You know I don't know how long they're going to hold on to Kevin Pillar. And I love his defense, but I I, I would love huh. to see somebody batting above 250. <laughs> so, and I love the guy. I think he's one of the best characters we have on the team. But we need outfielders that can play now. And if they don't start giving the chances to the Anthony Alfords. And, you know, like I said, go big on paying somebody to play first base. I love that Justin Smokes had the resurgence that he had. But in all reality, I was surprised they held on to him. I know yeah. you're going to have him cheap this year and next year. But that was your biggest trade chip heading into the trade deadline, and nobody talked about it. You yeah. had an all-star for the first time. And it, 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 is this going to be Jose Bautista version 2.0 after he hit 54 home runs in the one year and you sign him to an extended contract? Or is this something that is, you know, it's going to go away in a year? I have no idea. I don't want it to. I'd love the Justin Smoke story, especially seeing I was one of the ones saying, if he saw better pitches for years, that he'd be a great player. <laughs> but mm. I just think there's, you go in and you fill in these spots that you know are going to be holes one way or the other and go big or go home. There's a good free agent market coming. Uh, I'm from another understanding. I mean, I've talked with Ari numerous, numerous times uh, about the 2015 season, what Alex Anthopoulos did, uh, which I personally think, yes, we got in the playoffs, but he committed organizational suicide by trading 
most, if not all, of our major league-ready prospects to win now. And uh, people are going to hate me for saying this, but I think Alex Antopoulos was probably sitting there saying, you know, I'm at 500. Um, <laughs> I'm probably not going to have a job next year. My reputation might get ruined in baseball, so I am going to trade everyone and anyone to mm. make sure that we have a winning team. But on top of that, the five previous years before that, the Jays had a philosophy of drafting that it is very difficult to bring a free agent pitcher into town. It's very expensive to bring a free agent pitcher in town. So 90% of their draft picks in the top 10 rounds were pitchers. Mm. And they drafted pitchers and pitchers and pitchers. So now we are seeing the Jays have very little, if any, of positional players in our system. And we're talking good positional players. Yeah, we have Anthony Alfred, um, but Bo Bichette is, is, in my opinion, at least two to three years away. We have nobody now. I mean, I know the Jays drafted uh, a few years ago, DJ Davis. He's a bust. But any position player that they have drafted outside of Anthony Alfred, either A, wasn't drafted in the first 10 rounds, and B, they just haven't materialized into you know, major league ready. I mean, yeah, they're pieces, but not parts. So I think the Jays just really need to revamp their farm system and get some depth positional players. The pitching is coming, but I mean, we don't have a middle infielder in our farm system that we can say, oh yeah, here's a guy. But, you know, uh, okay. I, I get frustrated. Well, I I got to jump in first, and I'm going to just make one comment about the trades that Antopoulos made. Then I'll let Craig um, have at you as far as the so, as far as the minor league system, because uh, I always laugh. People talk about the, the Antopoulos trading away the farm system and stuff, and and I don't get it. I don't I don't know why people lament that so much. When you look at Daniel Norris, you look at Matt Boyd, you look at Miguel Castro, you look at uh, Jeff Hoffman. Uh, Castro is the only one that has an ERA below five right now. They're all, none of them have worked out as major mm-hmm. arms at all yet. And to, so to me, it's like, well, what, so we traded a bunch of guys that we thought were going to be great prospects. They haven't turned out to be anything. And so the price of that was to get into the playoffs and started at minimum a two year run of where a team was competitive. And yeah, they've completely bottomed out this year. But uh, in my mind, those trades, I'm a huge Anthopolis fan and I'm a huge fan of those moves and uh, I'll argue with anyone that thinks otherwise, respectfully, of course. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I bug Ari all the time. The, 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 the Blue Jays can basically have another starting rotation of youth. You know, you have Musgrove, you have Syndergaard, you have Nicolino. You know, yes, you have Norris. You have all these guys, and yes, they're young, and they're not not quite there yet, but they're, they're that youth movement that we no longer have in our organization and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it just really bothers me. I don't, me. I don't include, uh, and, I, and I don't blame you for sure. I don't include Syndergaard in that same 2015 conversation because that was a different timing thing for me. Um, of mm-hmm. course, he's you can lament him. He he's the guy that did work out. But as far as the guys that we traded for Tulowitzki and David Price, whoopie crap! Is if they were in our rotation now, they'd be uh, they have the same numbers as Liriano did, which I'm really not sore to see him go. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, has Miguel Castro been waived twice by two different teams now, or is it just me? He's now with the, he's done with, he's now with the Oakland Athletics, and he's been doing better in that bullpen. I'll give you that. But um, 
I, I, I'm the school of thought. I don't care who is in our minor league system right now. I would rather be top-heavy on young pitching prospects rather than any position players because the one thing that everybody always wants, Sonny Gray trade included here, is everybody wants pitching. <laughs> so <laughs> I can yeah. go grab a salvageable free agent shortstop or, you know, any of those kind of position players if I had to pick up Norioki like I just did for the Toronto Blue Jays to play left field for me every day, I might not be terribly happy with that, but if I know I'm going to barely give up two runs in a game every game, day in and day out, I'm strangely okay with that fact. Hmm. And we are on that cusp of these guys are going to be in Triple A next season, if not the major leagues. Um, I would say that Connor Green is probably the most major league ready out of the group collectively at the moment i think if he doesn't get a shot in the near future here he is at least going to be a spring training invite with a lot of eyes on him come 2018 spring training um i will i would be very impressed if john harris and sean reed foley continue this recent success that they've had harris got rocked in his last outing but he has been doing a lot better overall in his last five six starts and uh the one guy I'm going to plug here that everybody probably doesn't even know about, Ryan Barucki is becoming the ace of the Blue Jays minor league system right now. <laughs> so he had a he crushed it with the Lansing Lugnuts. He went up to Dunedin to start the season, did nothing but solid work anchoring that staff, and he has done nothing but throw. I think he's thrown two starts with the Fisher Cats so far. 14 innings, only gave up one run. <laughs> so mm. there's some guys coming that are um, – like I said, are a lot closer than a lot of people I think realize, and that's what I get for being the minor league guy. I love watching these guys come along. So, all right. So before we wind this uh, roundtable down, I have a question I want to ask each of you individually. We're going to start with uh, Chris. Uh, Rogers Sportsnet yesterday revealed that they're doing a forty and forty greatest Blue Jays segment, which I guess we were going to get sooner or later. They're always fun, though. I like when fans can have input into who the greatest Blue Jays of all time were. The problem is that with every passing year that they do this, I feel older and older and older because all the popular choices are the ones that have been around for like 10 or 15 years. And I worry about the data. Make sure you get your Rance Mullenix glasses out, Ari. That's all I'm going to say. First a Garth Orge class, <laughs> then a Rance Mullenix. I was always partial to Orge because he was like the little uh, stepbrother who just couldn't get his wheels going. Mullenix was actually a great hitter, if you, if you have any memories yeah. of him. So I want to ask, starting with Chris, uh, who are your top three, if you had to quickly on the spot rank the top three Blue Jays? I'll give you my top three, and then we can all compare. Um, if I were to rank the top three Blue Jays of all time, I would go with Roberto Alomar at third, uh, Dave Steed second, and Tony Fernandez first. And I think in respect why I would put those three where they are. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I can make an argument for I, – I made. I think I answered the tweet earlier on in the subject, and I think I had like seven guys. But uh, to me, Roy <laughs> Halliday is in that conversation. Um, Roberto Alomar, of course. Um, Carlos Delgado. And then I always have to put a plug in just because he was my favorite player, not because I think he was actually top three, but Joe Carter was my favorite player. Um, Still is. uh, So I always have to throw him into my, Hey man, absolutely. I still wear 29 when I play slow pitch to this day. (laughs) And I think who would agree that he deserves to be one of the top. Uh, What about you, Jeff? Who are your top three Jays of all time? Yeah, I, uh, Ari, we're about the same age. I'm, but uh, I don't want to go too far back. But, uh, I mean, I like George Bell. 
Uh, he was uh, one of my more favorite players. I mean, how can you uh, uh, look at him? He he won the MVP back in '87. Um, so certainly, but uh, I also like Roy Holiday and Carlos Delgado. They were definitely uh, two of my more recent uh, memories of my favorite players. Uh, those two guys definitely stand out for me. And of course, the last word will go to Mr. Craig Borden because he's been waiting patiently throughout this entire round table. So diplomatic of him. Craig, give me your top three J's of all time. Well, Ari, you know, uh, you probably see it because I keep, you know, goofing around with that 93 World Series beer can that's on my mantle with you on a Twitter feed and whatnot. <laughs> but um, right next to it, I have my Roberto Alomar Hall of Fame bobblehead with him doing the center seconds leech. You know, I'm walking this off. <laughs> so he's probably my top guy. I've loved him for ages. And I, I wear number 12 because of him when I play softball and baseball all through my, you know, career on my uh, terribleness. But then I, I've always loved John Olrood. I remember in 1993 looking through the mm. paper every day with my parents going, you know, where, did he get another hit? Is he batting 400 yet? And just, you know, loving every minute of it. And that beautiful swing of his from the left side was great. And then I'm going to have to say it's a very, very close between Delgado and Holiday for me. You can't go wrong with that, uh, Craig, because all three of those players were just exceptional players. Olerud in particular has given me fond memories because of all of his health challenges. If you remember, I think he had a brain aneurysm and he came back to be one of the the best uh, major league players of that era, actually in the late 90s. Gentlemen, this has been a slice. You've been listening to Craig Borden. You can find him on Twitter at Craigers1221. Jeff Falbo can be found at GFalbo13. And Chris Henderson is at Baseball for Brains. You've been listening to the Jays Journal Podcast Roundtable. Gentlemen, thank you. Pleasure as always.